0: We have just started our new study series together on the theme of Christ in the Old Testament. We did a one-week introductory overview of the entire study that's ahead of us last, last Thursday. And essentially what we focused on is what Jesus himself had to say to his disciples from one passage, one key passage in the Gospel of John and two key passages in the Gospel of Luke, uh, identifying for them that uh, much of the Old Testament was specifically written to identify him in advance. That there was uh, much more than the disciples had ever realized that was woven into the Old Testament scriptures that was anticipating his arrival, his, his birth, his entry into this world, the life that he would live, the mission that he came to accomplish, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension back to heaven, and then the great roles that he fulfills uh, currently and until the second coming, and even the second coming itself and eternity to follow, all of those things are being uh, have been Identified and described prophetically in advance uh, by the Old Testament prophets under the inspiration of God's Spirit. And we're going to try to not look at everything that's written in the Old Testament concerning Christ because there's just more than we will have time to cover in a single teaching series. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at the most important portions, the ones, I mean, It's hard to argue that one portion is more important than another, but there are uh, definitely some identifiable passages and portions that are more commonly recognized, easily recognized, and and actually highlighted for us, for instance, in the New Testament, that do um, describe the Lord Jesus in advance or point to him in some particularly special way. What we identified is that Our study going forward is going to be focused in three avenues or three lanes. We're going to look at the prophecies in the Old Testament that spoke in advance about Christ. We're going to look at a set of special appearances of the Lord Jesus prior to his incarnation, which are theologically identified as either theophanies, which is just a word which means the appearances of God himself, or more uh, specifically, accurately, uh, they're also known as Christophanies, which are Old Testament appearances of Christ. So we'll look at at uh, the most significant uh, appearances of the Lord. And then we'll look in our third category at what, are, what is commonly theologically identified as types and shadows, which are Um, which are pointers, in a sense symbolic pointers to Christ, that are going to be found in all kinds of uh, unexpected and oftentimes overlooked uh, passages of the Old Testament. So for tonight we're going to start our study of the Messianic prophecies, and we won't cover all of them today. Um, I had mentioned last week in the introduction that there's just so many passages, it's hard to, to kind of squeeze them down. Uh, just in terms of Old Testament messianic prophecies, which are, which are descriptions in advance by the prophets of the Old Testament of, of who Christ would be, what he would accomplish, his mission, all of the things that I, I've already mentioned. Uh, most theologians identify in terms of a listing of messianic prophecies, and there's some differences. Different theologians will come up with a different specific number of Old Testament uh, messianic prophecies, but the number is generally between three and 400 prophecies. Uh, We're not going to try to cover all of those. Uh, I don't know the specific total number of what we'll end up looking at, but we will look at for sure the most clear and significant ones, and we're going to break down our study of messianic prophecy In some specific categories as well. But just before I give you those categories, I'd like to read, starting out tonight, this passage in the letter of 2 Peter, in which Peter gives us a a basic working definition of prophecy. And this is true of all of the Old Testament and New Testament prophecies, not just the ones that are Christ specific, but the, the vast majority of Bible prophecies are focused on the role and mission of Christ, the person of Christ. And so this principle most certainly applies to the prophecies about him. We're going to read just a single verse from 2 Peter chapter 1, and that's verse uh, actually, let's go ahead and read two uh, verses 20 and 21. Peter writes, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That's a very important preface to what he's about to say. It's a very critically important theological principle that Peter establishes before he he declares the principle of verse 21. And that is that uh, those who read Bible prophecy uh, will sometimes insist that what we're doing is we're just kind of manipulating the words that were written by these men of former generations to try to kind of like force them onto the life story of Christ. Kind of manipulate what was written and what was said and 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 kind of make it fit Christ when it doesn't actually fit him or was never intended to fit him. Now Peter, who if anyone is qualified to speak to this, it would have been Peter uh, in this circumstance. He insists that uh, the way uh, prophecy was produced, the way God chose to speak through the prophets of the Old Testament, uh, was, a, uh, was a function or a spiritual process by which uh, there was no um, manipulating, there was no human um, maneuvering involved in the words that were spoken, and the words that were written. And as a result, verse 21 tells us, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is the essence of, of, of the process that's taking place, spiritually speaking, whenever we're looking at any Bible prophecy, Old Testament or New Testament, whether it's focused on Christ or uh, is focused on some other subject. But it certainly applies to the Bible prophecies that are uh, telling us about Christ in advance. So, what we have is we have God involved in the prophecy, we have human beings involved who are chosen by God as, in a, in a sense, God's spokespeople for uh, what he intends to reveal, and we have the Holy Spirit involved. Carrying these prophets along, in a sense, like uh, like being carried along by the current of a of a spiritual and holy river. And uh, in this circumstance, what we end up with is we end up with what God wanted to reveal or make known to humanity through these prophets. All right. So, with that as our basic working definition, I do I've, I've addressed this issue before, but I want to make sure we understand it. Not all Bible prophecy is future-oriented. Uh, that's the most common understanding of Bible prophecy. It's the, most, it's the one that most people are familiar with whenever you say, we're going to study Bible prophecy. People generally tend to think about, we're studying about events that are yet in our future. Um, some Bible prophecy, at the moment it was revealed by God and spoken through a prophet to the people of God, some Bible prophecy is addressing events in the future, Some Bible prophecy is addressing events that are happening right at that moment in history. And interestingly, some Bible prophecy is even addressing events in the past to the people that were alive at the time that that prophecy was given. Why would God ever prophesy to his people about events in the past if events in the past have already happened and are already known? What's happening in those circumstances is God is giving new light new perspective, new understanding, so that his people can see those past events, in a sense, through his eyes, what he wants them to understand about those events that have happened in the past or those events that are currently happening, or, in the one we're most familiar with, events that have yet to happen and describing history in advance. Now, of course, all Old Testament Bible prophecies about Christ are future-oriented. I just want you to understand that not all Bible prophecies are, but all Christ prophecies as they occurred in the Old Testament before he was born, by, by definition, of course, would have to be uh, future-oriented. Now, what the, the Christ-specific Bible prophecies address are these categories, and this is how we're going to work our way through the list of those prophecies again not being exhaustive and looking at every prophecy but but being being selective and picking out some of the greatest uh, representatives of each one of these categories. First we're going to look at how the Lord spoke in advance about Christ's true nature, meaning his true spiritual identity. Because of course one of the great issues when he actually arrived was that it was it was challenging for people to recognize him as to who he truly was. Uh, Of course, he had, as we've seen in our study through the Gospel of Matthew not that long ago, he had um, some that were identified as, in a sense, his spiritual opponents, his enemies, who never recognized him. We have others who were Uh, his own closest disciples. And at the beginning, they didn't accurately or correctly identify him and only came to recognize him over time and as he revealed more and more of who he was to them. So we're going to look at his true identity, uh, his true nature. Second, we'll look at uh, passages, uh, prophecies that identify his character. This is not so much who he is by nature, but who he is in action. We'll, we'll, ha- we'll see that there are prophecies that describe his character as being distinct from others. Then, uh, and I don't think we'll get this far tonight, we'll look at prophecies concerning uh, what we rightly identify as the first coming of Christ. If there is yet a second coming of the Lord in our future when he's going to return to this world, uh, there, of course, most certainly was his first coming, his arrival His incarnation, his birth as a human being in Bethlehem, and then there are a number of different prophecies that were given that identify his his entry into the world circumstances, uh, both that he personally experienced and circumstances surrounding his arrival, so that when he came into the world, for those who were paying close attention, they would be able to recognize him. For instance, like um, the the elderly man and the elderly woman who came into the temple of God as Jesus was being brought for his dedication to the Lord. And they both recognized, even though he was yet an infant at that point, they both recognized things about him because of their familiar, familiarity with these, um, these arrival circumstance prophecies. Then we're going to look at his mission the Messiah's mission, what, what assignment God the Father gave to him in his uh, work to accomplish here in this world. and that, of course, his mission would involve uh, not just the, the uh, kind of pinnacle of his accomplishment, which is his sacrifice in the cross, but everything in his public ministry leading up to the cross including the cross and then, of course, culminating in his resurrection as well and his ascension back to heaven. Then we'll look at his roles and what Bible prophecy says about this, his roles in God's eternal purpose. These are the roles that he continues to hold in God's economy and in God's kingdom to this present day and will forever hold these special roles or we could call these offices as well. Uh, for instance, Christ, and we, we've talked about this just recently in our Ascension study in the book of Acts, but seeing Christ as uh, the fulfillment of the great high priest, the fulfillment of the king of God's kingdom, in um, fulfilling his role as uh, the, the ultimate prophet of God, uh, fulfilling his role as lord of lords, as well as king of kings. So we'll we'll look at prophecies concerning those categories as well. And then finally, what we'll look at is any Old Testament prophecies that address not the first coming of Christ, but the second coming of Christ, which is, of course, far distant future from his first coming. And we'll try to distinguish in the Bible prophecies which prophecies were first coming specific, which prophecies are second coming specific. And we'll distinguish them from the standpoint of uh, many good-hearted Bible prophecy teachers, but who uh, kind of blend those two things together and see some first coming prophecies as referring to the second coming and seeing some second coming prophecies as referring to the first coming. We're going to try to, we're going to try and sort that out and keep each in its proper and appropriate category. All right, now. Where I wanted to start tonight, in terms of looking at the prophecies, we're going to look at the first two categories. But before we get into categories, I thought I would do something similar to what we did last week, which is last week I briefly shared just the very first reference to Christ in the Old Testament and then the last reference to Christ in the Old Testament. Tonight, what I want to do is look at the very first Bible prophecy of Christ. And of course, that's in the book of Genesis, but not in chapter one now we 're going to need to look in Genesis chapter three it wasn 't terribly long ago that, um, as part of the systematic theology study that we did, that Steve addressed this it 's an important passage it 's one that uh, believers should be familiar with, and uh, this is, of course, in the context of Adam and Eve. The Garden of Eden has been created. Adam and Eve have been placed in the garden. They've been given the instructions of the Lord back in chapter 2 of what to do in the garden and what not to do. They uh, fail. They cross the line. They sin in the way that they shouldn't have sinned. And now we're in chapter 3, which is the description of the fall. What has happened? What's the fallout? What's the aftermath of Adam's sin and Eve's participation? And at a certain point in the account in chapter 3, the Lord himself appears on the scene. This is not the focus of our study tonight, but this is, this is one of the first. It's not the first, but this is one of the first Christophanies that we see in Scripture, where the Lord himself appears in the garden in order to hold Adam specifically. He's going to hold Eve as well, but he's going to hold Adam specifically accountable for the sin that he's committed, But he's not just holding Adam and Eve accountable, he's also going to hold the third actor in this this event accountable. And the third actor is the serpent who has deceived both, well actually the serpent specifically deceived Eve and um, Adam chose to act in a sinful way without actually having been deceived as Eve was. But the Lord's going to hold the serpent accountable. And so we're picking up, as the Lord is now speaking to each one in turn, and the Lord here is speaking to the serpent. Verse 15. This is the first Bible prophecy of the coming of Christ. The Lord himself says, and and by the way, it's distinguished from some other Bible prophecies, because The Lord Himself is functioning not just as the Lord who is inspiring the prophecy, but He is actually functioning as prophet as well because He's the one that's speaking the prophecy in person. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent, but He's speaking about a future relationship between the serpent and all future women as represented by Eve. The. the identification of a change in the relationship is the Lord identifies that the relationship between uh, women and the serpent is going to be one of enmity. Enmity is is kind of like a a hardened opposition one to the other. I will put, and this is the Lord speaking a word of judgment, of what he is going to do by way of of uh, enforcing spiritual consequences on the future of mankind's experience in this world as represented here by Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And then here's where the focus shifts from Eve and the serpent to Christ as he enters the picture at some later point in human history. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So in these last two lines in verse 15, we have some very, in a, in a way that only the Lord can do, in a very short declaration, we have lots of theological substance packed Into this brief prophecy. So let's take these two last lines one by one. First, between your offspring and her offspring. And the connection there is the Lord saying, I will put enmity not just between the serpent and the woman in future generations, but the Lord is going to cause there to be a hardened opposition, a spiritual enmity between two sets of future offspring. And the word in the original text that we have translated, it's not a bad translation, but in our translation, the ESV, you'll notice the the key word here that's repeated uh, to identify these two categories is the word offspring. And um, you might notice that there's there's a, a little notation there by the word offspring. The the word offspring literally translated is the word for seed. So um, whenever normally you read in the Old Testament where it's talking about uh, planting seeds for uh, the purpose of growing crops and harvesting, it's this word that's used. If you, um, back in chapter one, when you uh, see a description of uh, each thing according to its, its uh, producing seed according to its kind, it's this word. But here it's referring to, to the offspring of the, the um, kind of following generations of people that are involved. And the two people that are involved are, interestingly, one is obvious, the woman's seed, and the other is the serpent seed. Now, this is, a, this is an area that theologians like to discuss and debate when we're talking about the serpent We're not literally focused here on the offspring of snakes, like, you know, just a a natural description that um, the children born to women are not going to like snakes. It's not a description of that. The snake here, of course, is representing the presence and activity in the Garden of Eden of Satan himself. Um, So the idea being here that in some spiritual sense, the Lord is describing the activity of Satan in future generations of humanity. Not that Satan himself is giving birth to future generations of humanity, but there are going to be future generations of humanity that are, in a sense, under his direct influence and control. Uh, uh, Maybe a, a better way to describe that would be to use Paul's description in Ephesians 2, and I'll come back to the Genesis passage. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, as Paul is briefly describing the the common change in the spiritual condition of humanity that all human beings are born into because of the sin of Adam and what we call the fall of mankind, Paul writes this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Now, the, the individual in view, as Paul uses the phrase prince of the power of the air, Is the same spiritual entity that's in view in the symbolic representation of the snake in the garden. So he's saying, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is probably the best single description found in scripture of the ultimate consequences of the sin of Adam and how it changed the spiritual condition of humanity as a whole so that humanity comes under the immediate and direct influence of an evil spiritual entity which we biblically identify as Satan. So in going back to the Genesis passage, in this prophecy, when the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and he's not just talking again about what's going to happen in the next few minutes, the next few hours, the next few days, or even the next few years, but what's going to be the case, spiritually speaking, for all successive generations of humanity's history, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. He's speaking to the serpent, between the serpent's offspring, those who live under the direct and immediate spiritual influence of Satan as their primary spiritual influencer. And then this second category identified between your offspring and her offspring, between your seed, serpent, and her, or Eve, the woman's seed. Now what identifies this for us more clearly than anything else as a Christ-specific prophecy rather than just a general description of the spiritual circumstances of humanity is that key phrase, her offspring, or her seed. The reason why it identifies Christ for us specifically is that in all other places in Scripture, as one generation is described as producing the following generation, Scripture always describes the normal production of the next generation of humanity as the passing on of the male's seed in the circumstance of the process of giving birth to a new generation. This is the singular exception to that general principle in that Eve is described here as having a seed. Now, biologically and normally, that is a physical and biological impossibility. A woman does not produce seed. She produces an egg. But the male produces the seed, and you know all of the rest. I don't have to spell out all the details for you. The point being here, though, the Lord himself speaks in an exceptional way that's meant to get their attention and the attention of all who will follow that will ever read this prophecy and think about it, in that this is describing far in advance the great event That's tied, and we'll look, of course, more specifically at this as we get later in our in our study in the next two or three weeks to follow. But the the circumstance of the entrance of Christ into the world that we call the virgin birth. In that, in that one and only one that's ever happened in all of human history, it's it never happened before um, Mary by the overshadowing power of God's Holy Spirit uh, conceiving a child in her womb without any human male involvement whatsoever, and then giving birth to Christ. And since that event, no one else in all of human history has been born in this world in that manner. So this, from the very beginning of human history, is God's way of describing in advance where all of the events of history are heading toward and why the entrance of Christ into the world in the unique and special manner in which he entered the world is God's signal of how he's going to ultimately resolve the problem that Adam and Eve have set in motion by their sin here at the beginning of history. So this is a reference prophetically To the virgin birth of Christ, and then this second statement at the end, the very last line of verse fifteen, is, "He shall now." It's talking about the woman's seed, the Messiah, the chosen one, the Christ child, so to speak. He shall bruise your head. God is still speaking this to the serpent. So, the woman's seed will be born into this world. And his great accomplishment in the sense that this is the only activity of that seed that's addressed by the Lord himself here at the beginning of history. I mean, how many things did Christ accomplish in his life in this world? So many that the Apostle John said if he were to write an account of all of them, all the books that fill the entire world wouldn't be sufficient to tell the full story of who he was and what he came to accomplish and what he actually did accomplish. But the Lord chose to, in a sense, kind of of set all of his works aside for a moment that would be accomplished and focus on one great work that he would accomplish, one that rises above all others. And that is captured by this description that he shall bruise the head of the serpent. And then in the process of doing that, the serpent, you shall bruise his heel. And so what we have here is the bruising of the head of the serpent is ultimately pointing forward to the greatest work of Christ, which is his sacrifice in death on the cross, which accomplishes the great plan and purpose of the Lord in redemptive salvation purposes in order to, again, resolve the problem. Ultimately, resolve the problem that Adam and Eve set in motion by their actions. But in the process of accomplishing his saving death on the cross, he is going to pay a price for um, the victory that he will gain over the serpent and over the serpent's influence. And that price is described as while his it's a it's a dramatic imagery, but it's an image of the Messiah encountering this. Evil serpent and raising his foot in order to crush by stomping on the head of the serpent. And as he does, in the process of crushing the serpent's head, he is bitten on the heel by the serpent. And so there is a highlight here, not just of his accomplishment, but of the personal cost that he will have to endure, that he will have to experience, which was how great was the personal cost to Christ in order to accomplish our salvation. it uh, He did earn ultimate victory over the serpent, but he had to die in order to accomplish that victory for us. Now, um, for those who want to cross-connect, because all of these will ultimately cross-connect to the New Testament, I won't have time to take us to these passages. But um, if you want for your notes to cross-connect, this first um, a prophetic description of the entrance of Christ into the world and His great mission. You can connect this to Romans chapter sixteen, verse twenty, and also to John chapter twelve, verses twenty-seven through thirty-three. And by the way, this um, this first prophecy is theologically identified as what is called the Proto Evangelium. It's just a you know, a highfalutin uh, Latin term to uh, describe in its simplicity what is the first declaration of the gospel. So the Lord Himself declares what is to come in the great culmination of His plan to save uh, those that He ultimately will save. And it's called the, the first gospel or, or the, the proto evangelium. Evangelium is just the, the expression or declaration of the good news. All right. Now, from there, instead of looking at every prophecy one by one throughout the Old Testament, I said what we would do is just uh, try to try to look at representatives of each one of these categories of prophecy. And so, the first two categories I said were um, Bible prophecies in the Old Testament about the nature of the Messiah. These are prophecies having to do with his true identity. And then the second is prophecies concerning the character of the Messiah. Some, some critically important descriptions so that those who later would come on the scene as false messiahs, and there have been many throughout history that have tried to uh, portray themselves in messianic uh, terms, so that we would be able to recognize and distinguish the true from the false. All right, so first the nature of the Messiah. Let's start in Genesis also, but let's jump over to chapter 22. This is uh, part of the great account of how the Lord spoke to Abraham to uh, gave, him, gave him the ultimate spiritual test of his faithfulness and, and required him to offer his son Isaac up as a sacrifice to the Lord. And uh, the Lord never, of course, intended Isaac to actually be killed, but he was testing uh, Abraham in terms of the level of his obedience. And as part of this whole process, uh, the Lord chose to reveal himself to Abraham, and not just reveal himself, but to reveal his uh, future purposes in the Messiah. So let's start reading in verse 15. This is the Lord's... um, the Lord's response to Abraham's obedience. And um, there's a character introduced here in verse 15 that's known as the angel of the Lord. When we get, this will be three or four studies from now, but when we eventually get to the category of studying the Christophanes in the Old Testament, we'll certainly revisit this passage and focus on who is this angel of the Lord character. But I would just say to kind of jump ahead, this is the Lord Jesus in his pre-incarnate appearance in this circumstance as he appears to Abraham and calls out to him in this key moment of Abraham's ultimate faithful obedience. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son Now, um, there's a broader prophecy that the angel of the Lord speaks to Abraham, broader than just a focus on the coming Messiah. But there is a very important focus on the Messiah in what the Lord is communicating to Abraham here. And I want you to uh, notice, we've already identified this concept from the Genesis passage. Notice in verse uh, 17, and in verse 18, the repetition of this key word, offspring. It's the same word that we saw in Genesis is identified as seed. And so the Lord says, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. This is clearly a reference prophetically to the Lord's promise to multiply the descendants of Abraham. The Lord certainly fulfilled that because one man and his future descendants eventually developed into the nation that we identify as Israel. So this first reference to the seed of Abraham is to the multiple individual descendants of Abraham that became the nation of Israel. Let's read on though. And your seed shall possess the gates of the gate of his enemies. And then this final statement in verse 18, and this is the one I, I specifically want to focus on. And in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now it is possible that the Lord here is still consistently referring to the future multiple descendants of Abraham as the way that he's going to fulfill this prophetic promise that he gives to Abraham, meaning the Lord could be saying, look, Abraham, I'm going to cause your descendants to multiply and multiply and multiply. They're going to develop into a great nation. Israel at one point in history was certainly among the greatest nations on the face of the earth. And that was, of course, in its heyday or high point under the uh, under the leadership of King David, and then as it transitioned to King Solomon. And he could be saying, it's through that nation of descendants that I'm ultimately going to bless all of the nations on earth. What's the one problem with connecting that concept of the multiplied descendants of Abraham as the fulfillers of how the Lord is going to bless all the nations of the earth? The problem is... Israel, even at its high point, was certainly a blessing to many of the nations on the face of the earth but was never a blessing to all of the nations on the face of the earth. There were many nations that were even yet undiscovered at that time as far as Israel was concerned and never received any direct influence from Israel at all. China being one obvious example. China existed At this moment in history, but there was no connection, there was no cross influence uh, going from Israel to China. The, The more correct biblical way to understand verse 18 is there's a shift in the application of the word seed. In the first use, in verse 17, it's obvious that seed is referring to multiplied individual descendants because the Lord uses seed in the context of your descendants are going to multiply to be as numerous as the stars in the heaven. And of course, one man can't possibly fulfill that promise. But in verse 18, seed here is used in a more narrow and specific prophetic way. In your seed, and I'm reading seed here as equivalent to the coming Messiah, the chosen one. In your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The question is, has the Lord blessed all the nations of the earth through Christ? The answer is, without question, human history would be radically different if it were not for the influence of Christ being exerted on every nation on the face of the earth. And in the, in the final evaluation through heaven's perspective, we could jump to one of the passages, for instance, in the book of Revelation. I won't take us there, but I'll just kind of briefly describe it as describing all of the redeemed that are gathered around the throne of God in heaven. And among them, representatives from every tribe, every tongue, every peoples, and every nation on the face of the earth. And all of them crying out in um, worship and appreciation for the saving work of Christ uh, in their lives, bringing them before the throne of God as being among the redeemed. And so here we're, we're focused on the seed of Abraham being, um, being identified with the Messiah in the same way that later in the book of Galatians in chapter 3, Paul makes an entire theological argument between whether you read a word as seeds being plural or seed being singular as in a single individual. And I believe that's the way it's intended here in verse 18. And so what we have here is the seed of Abraham being identified with the Messiah. Why is that important? Because what it tells us right from the beginning of the story is that the Messiah cannot, will not enter the world through any other line of descent other than one directly tied to a descent from Abraham. And so later, when you look at the genealogical records of Christ that are found both in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Matthew, you see a direct tie to Abraham. Because The Messiah must descend, humanly speaking, biologically speaking, from the line of Abraham. That tells us, number one, the Messiah is going to be a human being, and he must descend from Abraham. Second, let's look at Genesis chapter 49. Now, I'm going to skip a couple of generations here. The generations I'm skipping are important ones. Uh, Who was... Abraham's son of the promise. That was Isaac. And who was, of course, the son of the promise that descended from Isaac. That's Jacob. We identify Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the three great original patriarchs that lead to the uh, formation of the nation of Israel through the twelve sons of Jacob, who become the twelve heads of the uh, twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, the point being that there are Bible prophecies about the coming Messiah that tie the descent of the, the ancestry of Christ to first Abraham, then to Isaac, and then to Jacob. We're just skipping Isaac and Jacob for the sake of time, and we're jumping now to one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And we're looking at Genesis 49 and verse 10. This is. Uh, the broader context of this chapter. We did study this in in some detail as David a few years ago took us through the life of Joseph. Uh, But in this account, what's happening here is uh, Jacob is on his deathbed, so to speak, and he has gathered his 12 sons and he is passing on a patriarchal blessing to each one of the 12 sons according to God's Purpose for each one of those twelve sons, and they're representing the future of the tribe that will that will descend from them. And in this, of course, one of those sons is uh, his son Judah. And we're going to pick up in verse. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse um, eight as Jacob's attention, under the Spirit's inf- the Holy Spirit's influence, focuses on his son Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have grown up. Now, uh, he stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. Um, Just in those two verses, we have more than one prophetic reference to the Messiah. But I want to focus our attention in... Uh, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What the Lord is identifying as his special purpose and assignment for the tribe of Judah, and not for every single individual in that tribe, but for a specific descendant, that will be born of the line or the tribe of Judah, is that the rulership of God's people will be associated with one of the future descendants of Judah. Now, of course, uh, in history, as the Lord's purposes unfolded, we eventually reach King David. King David was descended from Judah, and then David gives birth to, to uh, Solomon. And Solomon, when he sends the Lord uh, responds by giving a consequence of dividing the unified nation of Israel into two nations, a southern nation and a northern nation. And the southern nation now becomes rebranded not as Israel but as Judah, the, um, the kingdom of Judah. And then the northern kingdom remains identified as the kingdom of Israel. But the capital city of Jerusalem was based in the region of the tribe of Judah. Uh, going all the way back to the conquest of the promised Land, the capital city was there the the royal headquarters, so to speak, of the Lord, was there. the temple would remain there in the in the city of Jerusalem, and the king 's rule would be revealed there in all future generations and so this this sceptre not departing from Judah has a, an actual fulfillment in King David and then in King Solomon. But ultimately, as it goes on to describe, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. It's, it's not simply God is going to bring about a kingdom in Judah in the future, but this is going to be a unique kingdom, a special kingdom, an enduring kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom in which the scepter, which is the royal symbol of authority and, and kingship, that scepter will never depart from Judah. And of course, it did depart from King David. It did depart from even Solomon, but it will never depart from the ultimate descendant of King David and the tribe of Judah, which is the Messiah himself. And when the scepter is placed in his hand by the Lord himself, it's going to be a permanent acceptance and then a permanent kingship that's going to be an expression from then on throughout all of history to follow and on into eternity itself. So much so that later Paul in Hebrews chapter 1, and uh, just for the sake of our clarity here, let me just read it. You don't have to turn to it. We studied this in detail years ago when we went through Hebrews together. But Paul makes this statement in Hebrews 1 verse 8. But of the Son. He says, this is God the Father speaking about his son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And uh, when the Lord says, speaking to the one holding that scepter and sitting upon that throne, your throne is forever and ever. It's an enduring, never-ending kingdom. And this is prophetically referenced here, uh, tied to descent from Judah all the way back to Genesis 49. All right, let's jump ahead then. Let's, let's jump to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I was talking just a moment ago about King David and Solomon, and this passage in the immediate context is focused on them, but in the long-range con- context is pointing beyond them to a greater son of David who is Christ himself. Uh, This is 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the most important of the Messianic prophecies. And this one, so what we've seen so far is the Messiah must descend from Abraham. He must descend not just from Abraham, but also from Isaac. He must also descend from Jacob, and he must also descend from Judah. Now we have one more additional detail in terms of his descent, he must also descend from David. So Second Samuel 7 verse 14. I will be to him, this is the Lord speaking to David about his future son. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from from Saul whom I put away from before you Now this is an interesting and kind of difficult challenging passage as we look at the prophecy as a whole and we say the Lord is actually and this isn't not my invention all the best Bible prophecy theologians Will identify this as one of the most important prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ, and that it's actually describing him in advance. But there's obviously a problem in verse 14 if we're going to apply this to Christ. What's the problem? Not the first phrase, the first line of 14 is pretty obvious. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This portion of this prophecy is actually quoted and applied to Christ in the New Testament. But the problem comes in with the rest of the prophecy that's identified beyond that, which is, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the Son of Men. What's problematic about that? Well, did Christ ever commit iniquity during his life in this world? Uh, It's a pretty important question to answer. Uh, Steve spent, he dedicated an entire study uh, in our theological study of the doctrine of Christ to the question of whether Christ had ever committed sin and why it's so important that he never did. If he even one time committed iniquity, what what effect would that reality, if it ever did happen? Thankfully, it never did. But if it had happened, that Christ had just crossed the line of God's righteousness and holiness even one single time in a violation of God's standards in his life in this world, what effect would that have had on his ability to save you and me. It would have had total effect in the sense that he would have immediately been no more qualified than you and I are to save one another, let alone ourselves. He had to have lived a perfect and sinless life in order to qualify as savior of others, which he certainly has qualified to do that. So what do we do with this passage? Well, what theologians identify is that there is an ability, and this is by discernment and by the, um, the, 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 the appropriate application of Bible interpretation principles to the passage, to distinguish which details are prophetically pointing to two individuals and which details of the prophecy are only focused on one individual. So what two individuals are possibly in view here? David's immediate son— His immediate son at that time that God is speaking this to David is the future King Solomon. Solomon is being described here. And Solomon had both of these qualities in which God acted in Solomon's life like a father to a son. God treated Solomon so well that he treated him as David treated Solomon, meaning that God was like a father to Solomon. But of course, Solomon was not a perfect man. He did sin, and he sinned in very serious ways. And the Lord is telling King David in advance that when Solomon sins, he's going to discipline him, and he's going to maintain a relationship with him, albeit through the avenue of needed discipline. But when we're considering which portions apply not just to Solomon but Christ as well, we can distinguish and say the first portion of the verse we're looking at, verse 14, applies both to Solomon in the short term and Christ in its ultimate application and and significance, whereas the second portion does not apply to Christ as well. Now, we're not picking and choosing where we want to pick and choose were following the lead of the apostles who, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, chose certain passages and saw prophetic significance as describing Christ in advance, and they they followed this same pattern of distinguishing which portion of certain prophecies apply to Christ and which do not. But this one is super significant along with the ones we've looked at so far. So what we have so far is Christ will be, the Messiah will be a human being, and he will enter the world along a certain line of descent. And only someone that has all of these connection points could possibly be considered even as fulfilling the prophetic promises of the entrance of the Messiah into this world. And so what are those Connection points. He must descend from Abraham. He must descend from Isaac. He must descend from Jacob. He must descend from Judah. And he must descend from King David. Unless he has all of those connection points, you can automatically rule out any other individual from consideration other than the one that has those connections. All right. Now let's look uh, heading into the what are called theologically the minor prophets, track down the prophecy of Micah. And if you hit Nahum, you've gone too far. Micah chapter 5. This prophecy is just as important as the ones we've detailed so far. The ones we've detailed so far emphasize that the Messiah will be a true human being, that will be born into this world according to a specific line of descent. This passage focuses on the true identity of the Messiah, but shifts our perspective from natural human descent to a much higher and more immediately spiritual perspective. Now we're going to read here in Micah's prophecy of chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 2. And all scholars who study the Old Testament Bible prophecies of Christ will identify this as one of the ten most important ones to be familiar with. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah. Now, who is Bethlehem Ephrathah? Who is that? The answer is, it's a trick question, it's no person. Bethlehem, as we should be familiar, I'll just drop the Ephrathah for the sake of our familiarity. Bethlehem is not a person but a town. A town in Judah. It wasn't that big of a town and it wasn't that well known had it not been specifically mentioned in the prophecy of Micah. It was just this small little backwater village about five miles south of a really big and important city by the name of Jerusalem. So it's near Jerusalem, but Jerusalem gets all of the attention and Bethlehem gets hardly any had Micah not spoken in advance about it. So what is it about Bethlehem? Well, first, Micah says prophetically, you know, speaking on behalf of the Lord, um, identifying how we should think about Bethlehem. The first and foremost thing is just an acknowledgement that everybody doesn't think about Bethlehem. It's so, much, it, it's so overlooked that Bethlehem was considered to be too little to be, to be in the listing of the important cities that are attached to the tribe of Judah as Judah's history is traced throughout Old Testament stories. So small that it's not even mentioned until, of course, Micah mentions it. So why, if it's so small to be so insignificant, why would Micah mention it at all? It's because of one specific child of Bethlehem that's going to enter the world at some, at this point, unknown future date in history. Uh, You know how some towns are just identified. They're so small they don't have anything else going for them, uh, so they they place their claim to fame in connection to some important individual that was born in that town. Sandy and I were uh, recently watching the um, TV reality TV show American Idol. I don't know if any of you watch the singing competition show, and there the young man that won it in this most recent version. Uh, came from, I don't even remember the name of the town. It was so small and insignificant. He came from some insignificant little backwater town in Kentucky. And um, one of the little segments, they do background segments for the, the singers that are, that are possibly going to win the show. Uh, they did a little segment where he went back to his hometown and uh, his big reward for having advanced so far in the competition, at that point he was a finalist, he hadn't even won yet, was that uh, the town fathers were putting up a, uh, a sign on the highway into town with his name on it saying, whatever the name of the town was, you know, Podunk, Kentucky, uh, home of, uh, I think his name is Noah Thompson, home of Noah Thompson, famous country music singer. And he's only famous because he was just on the show. But the whole point is that town is just so overlooked, and yet now it's claimed to famous because one special individual came from that town. That's kind of what Micah is doing here by the Spirit of God. But what he says about this individual, I mean, the example I use can't even be compared to this particular individual and his great accomplishment. He didn't win a singing competition or something So, Minor, this is the story of this one that's going to be born in Bethlehem. From you, that's speaking to Bethlehem as if Bethlehem was a person, from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, meaning God himself is speaking that I am going to cause to be born in this little backwater town someone who is so significant, but he's being born for my special purposes, for me. From you shall come forth one for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Okay, well, that alone is significant in that some future king of Israel is going to be born in Bethlehem, which was, by the way, unheard of before this. Most of the rulers of Israel were born, and they all descended from the line of Judah until the nations were later split. But um, they, were, they would be born where, generally speaking, in the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where the king ruled, and that's where the king lived. Their expectation, all the way up into the, the wise men visiting um, you know, the, the family of Jesus after his birth, was their expectation is that if there was a, a king born in Israel. Uh, certainly he would be born in the city of Jerusalem where, where kings live and where kings have their, their descendants come into the world. But here, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And then this special quality is attached to him that places him in an even greater category than any other. And that is, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient Days. Now, what this does, this prophecy, is it identifies for us that the one who is to be born as this king, as this ruler of Israel, is going to be unlike any prior king that's ever come before him or any natural king over the nation that will ever follow him, because this king is not limited to his natural life in this world. As all other kings are, this is a king who has entered the world before he was ever born in this world. Now, how can that possibly be unless this is a divine figure? Unless this is one who incarnates as a human being but had existence prior to his birth as a human being, One who, as we'll see in our study of the Christophanies later, who entered the world at key moments throughout human history leading up to his eventual incarnation as a human being. But it's described here as one whose coming forth is from of old. How far back in history does that go? Back to the beginning, back to the Garden of Eden, back to the Lord walking in the Garden, in the Garden of Eden. And... Who 's coming forth is also described as from ancient days, meaning his track record, his history in relationship to his human history is as old as history itself. No natural human being could possibly fulfill all of those characteristics now we 're at the end of our time tonight, so i 'm going i 'm going to put a, a pause we 've got uh, another four prophecies of the nature of the Messiah we'll pick up with next time, and then we'll look at the character of the Messiah. But let me leave you with this quote. I found this quote. I thought it was pretty interesting in terms of um, there are, let me describe it this way, There there are various ways to interact with people that question the divine inspiration of Scripture. And Bible prophecy is one of the most important and powerful ways to communicate to people that question the unique nature of scripture as compared to any other book, even any other religious book that's ever been written in all of human history. And the fulfillment of the various Christ specific prophecies in the person of a single individual is described in this way By these two, that um, these are two believers that wrote a book called Science Speaks, and they're discussing the statistical probability of the fulfillment of various Bible prophecies connected to one single individual in Christ. And this is the point that they made if you were to just randomly select any eight Bible prophecies about the coming of Christ before he actually was born, and try to mathematically calculate the probability of of any one person fulfilling all eight of those random prophecies that you've chosen. Considering that the number that Christ fulfilled is not just eight, he fulfilled some three to four hundred Bible prophecies. But this is their calculation. They go into math here. I think it's helpful. But even if they've miscalculated the math, I want you to just get a a sense of the enormity of the improbability of all of these happening in a fulfillment sense to one individual unless the Lord himself were the, was the one communicating these prophecies in advance and bringing them to fulfillment in Christ. So they calculated the chance of one person fulfilling any eight of the Bible prophecies of Christ was one to the tenth to this i didn 't even know how to mathematically say this one in ten to the seventeenth power now the, just to get an idea of how big that number is if you were to if you were to represent each number individual number in that large number of ten to the seventeenth power as an individual silver dollar and then you were to take them they, they described and and You've got all these silver dollars and you're going to, in the state of Texas, lay them out next to each other to cover as much territory in the state of Texas. I don't know if you guys know how huge the state of Texas is. They said that the number of silver dollars would cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. That's how many silver dollars would be involved in that. Now blindfold a man and tell him he can go anywhere in the state of Texas and his goal is to pick just one specially marked silver dollar out of a state covered in two feet deep of silver dollars and if he goes out blindfolded and picks the one right marked silver dollar, that's how unlikely it was that even eight of those Bible prophecies were actually fulfilled in one single individual born hundreds of years after those prophecies were given. But then the number is greater than that because it's not, again, just eight that were fulfilled, but some three to four hundred prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ and could only have been fulfilled by him. All right, so let's stop there tonight and we'll pick up with the rest of our list of the the prophecies of the nature of Christ in our next study. God bless you.